What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Top of the List. I am your host, RB, here with my co-host, Dom. Say what's up, Dom. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. And uh, this week, we're going from uh, one of our favorite producers to another. Of course, last week, uh, or two weeks ago now, we reviewed uh, James Mangold's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Of course, we're both big James Mangold fans. And now moving over to another one of our favorites, Christopher Nolan and his latest masterpiece, Oppenheimer, a historic epic, uh, to say the least. A lot of hype around this movie, a lot of of high scores from critics, and uh, we're here to break it down for you and what our thoughts were and where this ranks amongst other Christopher Nolan films. I know we've reviewed a few of them here on top of the list. We've talked The Prestige, we've talked The Dark Knight trilogy, uh, we've definitely talked... uh, Inception. We haven't talked Interstellar, but another one of our favorites. Uh, but now we'll break down Oppenheimer for you and then dive into our thoughts on where it ranks amongst the Christopher Nolan films. So, Dom, go ahead, kick us off your overall thoughts on Oppenheimer without any spoilers in your score. Absolutely. This one, uh, man, what a difficult film for me to give a score to uh, yeah. because uh, <laughs> I hate doing this because I always feel like a cop-out when I do this, but I feel like it is so hard to put this amongst the other Christopher Nolan films. Yes. If you go and tell someone that this is a Christopher Nolan film, they may be expecting, like you said, RB, an inception, an interstellar, something exciting, science fiction-y, something really thrilling like The Dark Knight. This is Christopher Nolan making a biopic, and not just any biopic, but it's him making a classic movie. And that's what I keep coming back to in this one. This is him returning to his filmmaking roots. This is him making a classic movie, much like when he first started with Memento and before that, his very first film, The Following. Um, These are classic, slow, suspense films. And what to me this film feels like, Oppenheimer, uh, is a culmination of all his work put together. And allow me to explain that. I feel like this one has the black and white and visual time-jumping style of Memento, uh, while at the same time it has some of the characterization of the other films like Interstellar, Inception. Um, It definitely has the scientific angle like Inception and Interstellar. Um, What it carries over from The Dark Knight and Prestige is, I would say, the extreme suspenseful editing style that Christopher Nolan is definitely um, famous for. So it has all the great aspects of a Christopher Nolan film. However, this affects my score because it's a much slower paced film than anything he's ever done before. With that said, there is extreme suspense in this film that pays off well. But this is a three over three-hour film that can feel laborious at times, that can feel to me a little bit... If you're not a history buff, you can get lost a little bit, just slightly in a few moments in this film. And um, to me, that makes me knock this one down just a little bit and because I feel like a few of his other films are a little more crowd-pleasing, and that's something we talk about a lot with The Dark Knight. It might not be the best Batman film, but it's the best blockbuster action superhero movie ever made, and um, that's without debate. So anyways, I'm going to give this one a 9 out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think you really hit the nail on the head. That's right where my score is going to be as well. Nine out of ten. Um, I think this film had a lot. Obviously, 
every portion of this film, I, I believe, about our namesake character, J. Robert Oppenheimer, was important and necessary. There were some other sequences about other characters that I felt didn't need to be included in this film that maybe lacked a little bit of historical framing for for someone who... I, I mean, I enjoy history and I know enough about Oppenheimer, but some of these other characters that I knew nothing about that were talking about things that just... You know, you don't understand, and I know this is a little bit of a spoiler, but, like, what the negative implication of having your security clearance pulled. Like, we're talking this whole movie. I guess we can sort of get into spoilers here, you know. A little wee-oo, um, <laughs> You know, the, the whole film is told basically through these two court hearings that are, when you look it up, ten years apart. Uh, one about pulling... J. Robert Oppenheimer's security clearance, which, again, I still don't really understand why this is such a high-stakes uh, framing, except for it frames the story of this other story that's going on with uh, Robert Tony Jr.'s character and him being confirmed as a member of Dwight Eisenhower's cabinet. So, I, again, whereas there are extremely suspenseful scenes in here, incredible acting, it almost felt as though where there were times where we'd go off of tangents on different characters. I'd rather just have had exposition somehow explaining the historical framing and what some of these terms meant. But See, overall, I... the film oh, itself was a masterpiece. I think the cinematography yeah. was incredible. The suspense was incredible. This cast, an all-star cast, that oh, hit yeah. it out of the park. I know that, and again, we're talking about Christopher Nolan's other films. The only other historical film I had seen him do was Dunkirk, Dunkirk which I did not like. And I think he redeemed yeah. himself when it came to the historical thriller. I'm, I'm like this one much, much more than Dunkirk. Although yes. I, I enjoyed Dunkirk upon watching it, but it did have okay. some very clear flaws for me, though. Dunkirk um, is definitely my least yeah. favorite Christopher Nolan work. My biggest problem – I don't know if we ever talked about Dunkirk, so let me just take one 60 seconds to talk about Dunkirk. My (laughs) biggest problem with Dunkirk, and it's a problem that all the other great war films haven't made, and it's a problem – it's a mistake that Christopher Nolan made. He didn't give any of his characters names. I understand why he did this. He wanted to make it more realistic, but as a result – I can't name one memorable character in the film except for just, oh, that was Kenneth Branagh. That was Cillian Murphy. Yep. You know, yep. there, there's no emotional connection to anything happening on screen, um, which I can't say agree. about Oppenheimer, because Oppenheimer, Correct. there's a lot of emotions happening on screen. And uh, yep. that's why it's, it's, I, I think a, a much, much better film personally, although practically Dunkirk is very impressive from a filmmaking standpoint. Um, I, I will say that I love the story of Oppenheimer much more. However, RB, I'm very interested to hear uh, your complaints about the exposition because I also had a problem. However, my complaints, I'm wondering, uh, maybe you could clarify this too, but I'm also wondering, my complaints primarily are at the beginning of this film. I feel like this okay. film started off in a way, much like in uh, some of his other films where we have kind of a asynchronous timeline, uh, out of what do, what do they call the out of chronological order? I, I I couldn't tell you exactly, but yeah. I, I mean I, I love guess this. Like... This is to me a la Quentin Tarantino. I right. love 
the jumping around, the piecing it together in the audience. I think with a three-hour film, or even you know Tarantino when he gets these two-and-a-half-hour films, right. to me as a, as a member of the audience, that keeps me engaged. Whereas if we're just telling a long three-hour timeline of a story, I'm right. losing interest. So, I mean, I love that yeah. he opted to do this. We begin with these two court esque cases. I know they're not truly court cases, mm-hmm. but these two hearings, let's call them, that are at different timelines. And so the audience is able to tell the difference in the timeline. And what I love is his use of the different editing and cinematography, the black and white yeah. footage of the, the 1950s yeah. you know, cabinet hearing versus more the dingily lit, and, lit uh, conference room where the Oppenheimer trial is going on 10 years prior. Oppenheimer hearing is going on 10 years prior. I think this was an excellent way to do it. It was noticeable but not on the nose on to tell audience members, okay, this is a different timeline, different story. Even because in reality, eventually these timelines cross over and there's some excellent sequences where we see the black and white shift to color or vice versa when parts of both of these flashback sequences, because that's what these films are. This film is, it's a bunch of flashback sequences in reference to what's going on in the hearings and where they're, their crossover points are we see this brilliant brilliant editing of the color coming in or draining out of the screen yeah that was amazing um my my primary problem with uh the way that the exposition was handled was at the beginning actually and i think my my biggest problem and i think what he was trying to do here was to say whether or not the war had ended or not as kind of like an indicator of where we were in time. He kind of relied on that a lot because I think at the beginning of this film as someone, I'm, this is mostly just me. This is just my issue. Mostly I, I, I'm not a history buff and I was kind of unfamiliar as to where we were in time because, um, I was confused as to, he was at Princeton meeting Robert Downey Jr. For the first time and talking to Oppenheimer. And then I was like, Oh, wait a second. But now he's at this other university, in the United States, and that kind of threw me off. And then I, I grasped what was going on, like you were saying, was we're jumping back and forth between a, a further <laughs> past, a middle past, and then like the present present. So there's like four or five different times that we're actually in. Right, right, exactly. I, I think, yeah, and, and again, that's the, the, a the jumbled entire, way to open. No, I understand, and it, it took a minute to understand what was happening. I wholeheartedly that's, that's my agree. Issue. That's my issue. I, yeah. I think it was it was very sub, subtly hinted at in the beginning, where we first see Oppenheimer in his hearing room, where it says one fusion, and then we see the black and white with Robert Downey Jr. and it says two fission. Now that was just yes, a small thing that I that. caught right at the beginning that I was trying to figure out, are we doing multiple steps? Are we going to go, how many different timelines are right. we going to go? And then I realized we're doing one and two and it's okay. It's just going to be these two comparisons. Now I knew nothing historically. I knew a lot about J. Robert Oppenheimer. I knew nothing about no, Robert Downey Jr.'s character so much so that I couldn't tell you who he was, his name now, Louis, Louis Strauss. Strauss, yeah. You know, I still, you know, I, yeah. yeah, I had to do a lot of research on him afterwards because he was a character in history I didn't know anything about. I knew right. Oppenheimer as the father of the Manhattan Project. And I didn't know any of this drama that happened after the fact. That was all new to me. Mm. Me too, as well, yeah, I agree. And um, I also feel like uh, in this one... I think the so were you so the fusion and the fission when that shows up so let me know if I'm interpreting this right so 
Which one was it? Fission yes. was Robert Downey Jr.'s character? Because I think that each yes. one was one was Oppenheimer's perspective and then the other was Strauss's perspective, right? Fusion was Oppenheimer's perspective where we're seeing yes. him defend himself in the hearing and Fission is Robert Downey Jr. trying to get appointed to the – or approved by the Senate into Eisenhower's cabinet. Got it. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I think that was a smart – but like you said – and, and here's, my, here's where my main uh, critique is here is that Christopher Nolan makes his movies to be watched more than once. A lot of directors do that these days. Yes. Tons of directors do that these days. I feel that, especially with this film, that he expects you to be on board from scene one. And uh, <laughs> upon first viewing, that's just simply impossible. Yet, upon second viewing, I might be already on board, and this might be a better film upon second viewing because of that. And um, Absolutely. Is that a positive or negative? What do you think, RV? What's your I, opinion I, on that? I, I personally find that a positive because okay. I love – Rewatching films like this, and Nolan is a prime example. I've rewatched The Dark Knight tons of times, and every mm. time I can spot something a little bit different, find a new right. meaning, try and understand more of Heath Ledger's Joker or or Christian Bale's Batman. You know, it. I, I I'm able to do that, and I I think he does it well. Now, if a director does this poorly, it can lead to a long, boring mess. But I don't right. think that's what this film is. There okay. are parts where it is long. There are parts I like the word you use. You know, laborious. Or mm-hmm. le, le, yeah, that's that's the word. You know, there are parts that are arduous. But at no point did I feel bored in this movie. Right. I didn't feel bored at all. I just felt like they're taking their time with this. Like they're they're taking yes, their time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I think that that's my only real negative. Um, I think there's, there's just so much to say about the final third act of this film that is so incredible that I, I feel like it could have been a film all its own. I was completely jaw dropped um, I don't know. I was just completely immersed in this film by the third act, and the way this film ended was absolutely phenomenal, I thought, and um, it left me absolutely haunted by the meaning of this film. This is, in my opinion, the most meaningful ending to a Christopher Nolan film since Inception. Since Inception. That was one of the most impactful endings all of any movie I'd ever seen um, with an ending left up to complete interpretation of whether or not yes, the dreidel was yes. going to fall. Right. And, uh, man, that, that, that was just a great movie anyway. So, um, this ending I think is on the same level as that. Um, now what I will say is that, um, the final, uh, meeting, with him and Albert Einstein is actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And I think that's one of the best things Nolan does in this movie is he teased that up early on in the movie yes, and then yes. hits it out of the park right at the end. I thought that was perfect. So anyways, I, I'm losing my, yeah. my track of train of thought. So you take it away, RB. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, and again, this film, what, what I loved so much about it was, and it's one of my favorite genres of film was this film had all of the excitement of a suspenseful courtroom drama. Yes. 
and so much more. I mean, that was, as you mentioned, the third act of this film was that were these intense, intense hearing room scenes. And yet we had, prior to that, I would say one and a half to two hours of great cinema that were completely different from that. That would, We went from historical biopic to hearing film and back seamlessly. And mm-hmm. that's what I thought was so excellent about this movie, where mm-hmm. it fell short in some historical framing I think it it really made up for in being so. I mean, every scene on its own was so amazingly crafted yeah. in this film. I mean, again, I can nitpick here and there and say, you know, do we really need the whole lead in of you know Oppenheimer's you know entire collegiate career and how he became a physicist and why he didn't ever want to be practical physics and just wanted to you know create theory and study black hole i mean do we need it no and yet it's i'm in, i'm encaptured by every scene i don't care that you know mm-hmm. i may sit here and say in you know post viewing well we didn't really need that scene because it was a great scene I mean, that's why I feel Christopher Nolan chose to make this movie three hours long is he sat down and made a film and had scenes he could have cut, but he didn't because they didn't need to be cut. As long as the movie was, every scene was a masterpiece. It was a work of art. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree that that I think this is his most artfully done film. Yes. Probably since Interstellar, I would say. Um, I think Interstellar was probably his most beautiful film before I saw this one. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and that actually brings me to another point, which I find so fantastic about this one. Christopher Nolan does science so well. Interstellar, yeah. that was one of the best aspects of that film, was getting into the yep. science. You felt like a scientist after watching that film because you just were trying to grasp at the physics. It makes you love science a little bit. And I felt the same mm-hmm. way in Oppenheimer. He was able to do it yet again here. Um, and it's thanks to the great acting on display and directing. Um, but yeah, so this is yeah, a phenomenal, yeah. so probably my favorite science film of all time. And that's that's a great segue. Let's uh, let's discuss a little bit about the cast because you're talking about the excellent yeah. acting in this film. Because there, to me, almost everyone was incredible in this film. Um, I mean, Cillian Murphy, amazing, perfect cast. I don't know if you've ever if you've seen pictures of Oppenheimer, but also just looks like the guy. Really and, looks I mean, like plays him. the role brilliantly. Um, so I, I love him in this role. Matt Damon is Leslie Groves. Phenomenal incredible. performance from Matt Damon. Ooh. What again? Yeah, just keeps you guessing. You know, a, a mysterious character. You know, he's not. You think he's just the military grunt. Then you learn about his engineering background. But I mean, I think he's he's excellent. And Leslie Groves is an is an interesting person in history as well. I mean, I think prior to Manning the Manhattan Project, he was the guy who also like created the whole idea of having the Pentagon. So I mean, he's he's just an interesting character as well. Robert Downey Jr. Completely different from what I've seen him play before. I've seen him playing have a lot sort of to the say about comedic. Him. You know, we seen him as as Iron Man. I've seen him before that in a movie called Tropic Thunder. He plays a comedic role. In this, he, he is amazing as Lewis, unrecognizable at times as an excellent, excellent devious villain, which I had never seen Robert Downey Jr. play that role before. So, big fan of his acting and. Um, Florence Pugh, I thought, was amazing in this as Jean Tatlock. His she was really sort good, of yes. lover, communist. Yeah, I mean, I thought she was amazing. The only person who falls a little flat for me in this film is Emily Blunt playing Kitty Oppenheimer. I thought she was just kind of there, kind of a background character. 
See, I, I really enjoyed her performance. Uh, okay. Um, one of my favorite parts of her performance was actually at the end. I feel like she, yes, she was mostly a background character until the very end of this film when she had one phenomenal scene where uh, she was being interrogated by Jason Clark, who did phenomenal Jason as the Clark prosecutor. Jason Clark was incredible as the, yes, yes. Oh, oh my absolutely God. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Going to be a definitely underrated performance, but a very important performance. And mm-hmm. um, Jason Clark did fantastic. And playing off of Jason Clark, I thought Emily Blunt did fantastic, kind of playing, fooling both the audience and the prosecutor into thinking that she wouldn't be able to handle the questions because she's an alcoholic. And um, I thought that was a brilliantly written scene, and it was done well by Emily Blunt. But, um, RB, is it okay if I talk a little bit about Robert Downey Jr. and his impact on this film? I love Cillian Murphy. Like you said, he looks perfect as an Oppenheimer. He's going to win a bunch of awards, I'm sure. But for me, the performance in this film uh, that surprised me the most, that I hope gets awarded the most, is Robert Downey Jr., because I think this is going to go down in history as one of the greatest performances for a villain of all time. Christopher Nolan's done it again. People, write this down. Take this down on the record. Dom says it now. This is the best villain since the Joker, honestly. Yep. I, have, yep. I, I think this is one of the great acting feats of our generation that we are going to see here. Because throughout this whole film, Robert Downey Jr. just does a fantastic job of hiding the fact that he's pulling the strings all along while you're watching this film. And when he reveals at the end everything and just lets it all out, it was one of the best scenes of all time. He has some of the best lines of all time at the end of this movie. And, um, yeah, this is the greatest Robert Downey Jr. performance I've ever seen. I, I think that I liked him better in this movie than I did as Iron Man. That's how much I liked him. Uh, this is his best performance, and it's... One of the greatest of all time. I truly believed that um, he wasn't – not that he was a good – it's not that he was a good guy, but you believe that he was innocent. And that's yes. what's so great about the performance is that he believably played an innocent man. And then when you see his hands are all covered in blood, it was totally surprising, I thought. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Wait, what was your opinion, so. RB? Yeah, I, I agree. No, I thought Robert Downey Jr. definitely gave an award-worthy performance. I definitely believe he is a driving force as the villain in this film. And again, I'd love to say that he was the best person in this film. But again, this ensemble cast I thought was amazing. And no matter who was on screen as a subject in this film, I couldn't look away. So I can't say he was the best character, but just another incredible member of this awesome ensemble cast. Benny Sassy as Teller was fantastic. I love the Safdie brothers' films. I'm glad to see uh, Benny Safdie in an acting role here as Teller. Um, he did a really fantastic job, so I want to make sure we shout him out as well. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, if, you know, like you mentioned already, I, I think Jason Clark's scenes as the, mm-hmm. uh, as the prosecutor here are incredible. I spent the entire movie sitting saying, oh, my God, I know that person's face. Who is that? And I, I didn't realize it was Jason Clark. I just finished rewatching uh, Winning Time, the show about the Lakers, where he plays similar intensity level character. He plays Jerry West and is incredible in that role as well. And then I, when I went back and saw it was Jason Clark, I said, yeah, that, that's that man. And he is an up-and-comer, definitely. I wasn't crazy about him. The only other thing I had seen him in prior to Winning Time was uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, where I wasn't crazy about his role. Right. But I think he is incredible in this as he was in Winning Time. 
awesome. Yeah, I do and, want and... to say, I mean, mm-hmm. as we, I think we're wrapping up talks about Oppenheimer and we'll move into our conversation about Nolan films. Uh, okay. But I do want to say, whereas I give this film a 9 out of 10, I do think there's a better film about J. Robert Oppenheimer out there. And I think you may have seen it with me, Dom. I, I'm trying to remember if I saw it in my high school chemistry class or physics class. or I, I think it may have been in a class we had together, but we watched it in one of those classes. Hmm. This film's called uh, The Fat Man, and, or Fat Man and Little Boy. It's a 1989 film. It stars Paul Newman. Uh, directed by a guy named Roland Joffe. I was looking into him. Hadn't seen anything else that he's directed. But this is a film that purely takes place from 1942 until 1945 when the when the bomb is dropped. Um, and I, I think this film does a better job at least covering... It goes so far in depth about what happened at the Trinity test site at Los Alamos... And again, going into this film, that's what I was hoping to see. And that was definitely my favorite part of this film, everything that happened in New Mexico. Me too. Um, so to me, this is a, you know what we just watched or talking about Oppenheimer is a 9 out of 10. That's a 10 out of 10 film for me. Um, and that's hmm. where I knew most of what I knew I don't know if about I've seen that one. Oppenheimer before. Okay, so it must have been in, hmm. in one of the classes we didn't take together. But yes, it was hmm. in one of the high school classes we watched it. And I really, really thought it was incredible. I would definitely say that. give it a watch if you can. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. Looking at it, it was a complete box office flop. It cost $30 million to make and only made $3 million at the box office. So maybe hard to find. But October twentieth, 1989, Paramount Pictures released it. And yeah, I, I really enjoy that movie. Paul Newman is in it as Leslie Groves, who's actually the main character. Oppenheimer is kind of a, a secondary character in this film. John, A young John Cusack is in it as well and gives one of my favorite John Cusack performances. Interesting. Interesting, RB. Always bringing the knowledge here on top of the list with the deep I cuts, try to. RB. I try to. Get my, get, my, get my research in. Remember some of, the, some of my favorite movies of old. Awesome, man. Um, before we give our official rankings of Nolan films here on top of the list, RB, um, do you mind if we talk a little bit about the ending and the meaning of this film? I just want to yeah. talk about yeah. it a little bit. I want to know if you got the same interpretation as I did. Because to me, like I was saying earlier, this is one of the most haunting endings I've seen in a Nolan film. Um, much so. So, and I had to do a lot of talking and uh, uh, with my dad. So I went and saw this one with my dad. My dad's a huge history buff, so I'm very fortunate to have a big history buff to explain all this stuff to me. RB, that reminds me, before I go into this, um, I wanted to comment on what you said earlier. What is the importance of these security clearances? I thought the exact same thing as you, RB. The whole movie, I'm wondering, what's the big deal? They're saying this isn't a trial. This is not a court yeah, hearing. Not You're not on trial. Prison. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was, so yeah. what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. And this is a massive thing that I feel like the movie kind of leaves out unless you yes. know and are paying attention. My, my dad tells me that the reason why him not being granted this security clearance was is because he was actively – trying to stop the hydrogen bomb program, mm-hmm. right? Without that security clearance, he had no say in, what do they call it, the AEC? Uh, uh, was Atomic Energy Commission? Is that Energy what it is? Energy Council or Commission, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's something correct. like that. So he had no control over the AEC, right, without his security clearance. So that's what was so impactful of this is because it was like we saw. This movie is a geopolitical statement 
if there was ever one, um, especially at the end of this film, there's a huge, huge geopolitical uh, statement made uh, about war. And um, but yeah, so were you aware of that, RB? That that was the I, reason? I, I, I wasn't okay. going into the movie, and that's precisely what I mean by the film needed a little bit more framing yeah. afterwards. Looking it up, I was able to figure that out. But you know, I'm, I'm trying to you know wait for the whole movie to see if this is going to reveal. And when I have to Google something after a movie, I'm a little bit frustrated. Yeah. Yes. Which yes. is, again, one of the reasons and... I give this a 9 out of 10 instead of a 10 out of 10. But it was great talking with my dad about it because he knew all of that. And, I, like, so for him, mm-hmm. like, talking about his experience, so for someone that knows all this stuff that's a history buff, they might have just totally appreciated, like, okay, this guy knows this stuff. He's on board. He's not expecting me to not know that. Like, right, he's expecting right. me to know that, which I think my mm-hmm. dad actually appreciated. So, mm-hmm. um... Mm-hmm. So I think that's cool in in a, in a sense of that, but like you said, it kind of left us a little uh, questioning. Um, but to get into the ending here, the final conversation with Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein was not anything about Strauss at all. No. Yet it was. Now it is time to bear the consequences of your achievement. And what does this final scene with uh, Albert Einstein mean? Well, he talks about how he's going to soon be having salmon dinners and they'll be placing medals on him, right, RB? And we flash mm-hmm. forward to the future and we see Oppenheimer old and we see Teller old. Well, this is an incredibly important scene. We notice that Emily Blunt's character does not shake Teller's hand. Yes. What does that mean, RB? What, what's, what's your interpretation of this? Well, I mean, I I think this was definitely a reference to earlier in the film as well in the sense that he shakes his hand after he leaves and gives the scathing testimony. But more so she doesn't because she doesn't want the blood on her hands is is what I review. I see this as a a Lady Macbeth-esque role because Teller is the driving force and was even at Los Alamos behind the hydrogen bomb. And I think she knows that and, and sees that where Oppenheimer has seen... I, I the 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 implications. Teller is continuing to up the ante and doesn't realize the negative implications of creating this weapon. He is so focused on creating the weapon that he never sees the horrific uses of it as Oppenheimer sees sees as we see in the scenes that he has of regret in these sort of horrific nightmarish scenes we see after the bomb is dropped. I mean, we see very little of it. Again, this was very impactful for me because I had just gone and visited the the uh, the Peace Museum in Hiroshima that's all about, obviously, the dropping of the bomb and the implications, that, the physical implications of what actually happened, but also, you know, talking about, you know, the future implications beyond just what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also the future implications as well that now... You know, at that time, America, and then later on, obviously, the whole fear is of Russia during the Cold War. And now, many nations throughout the world have the ability to start nuclear warfare with a press of a button. That's the implication, and far more powerful than what Oppenheimer created as these scientists, like Teller, continued up the ante. Absolutely, RB. And um, kind, of, kind of the way that I saw this, too, is that the entire film's premise is based on these two differing perspectives, right? We have the perspective of Oppenheimer, like you said, uh, Fission, right? And then uh, Downey Jr.'s is uh, – Strauss's is uh, Fusion or, or vice versa. I can't remember. <laughs> but um, 
anyway, so we have these two perspectives, right? Perspective one of a scientist, Oppenheimer, who eventually becomes a politician, right? Through no knowledge of his own, he does. He does become a politician because he yep. gets involved yep. in all these things, right? And then on the other hand, we have Strauss, a politician who gets involved with all these scientists, right? And um, to me, what the meaning of this final scene is, is Einstein says that they'll be holding and putting these medals on you, but it won't be for you. It'll be for them. So what does that mean? Well, to me, that means is that it's all a show, right? And um, I kind of see this as that politicians and scientists are more alike than what we think because as we see, Emily Blunt doesn't shake Teller's hand because she knows that it was Teller that is ready to step on the shoulders of Oppenheimer's work and create the hydrogen bomb, much like Oppenheimer did the same thing to Einstein. That's the parallel of this. Yes, absolutely. And then, of course, we're left with the impactful final line when he says, you know, there was a moment when we thought we could have destroyed the entire world. I think we did. And I think that these final moments bleed a lot into why I find this a really great, um, I want to say this at the end here, (laughs) horror movie. This is Nolan's version of a horror movie because of the way he ends this film. And the reason why is because he shows modern day nukes with the shadow of Oppenheimer in the background. It was one of the most haunting images I've ever seen in a film. And the reason why is because Yes, Oppenheimer did change the world that day when they, when they uh, proved right and they um, created the uh, nuclear bomb. And the reason why is because ever since then, no matter where you are in the world, no matter where you live, you know deep down that you could be destroyed at any minute. And that's because of him. Yep. And that's yep. the haunting message of this film. With, without a doubt, yeah. And, and again, I, I think it's told beautifully by... Uh, Oppenheimer, and that's by I, I. Although we can clearly see our antagonist being being Strauss in this film, I don't think there is a true protagonist. The film is right. about Oppenheimer, but by no means does he make out Oppenheimer I be agree. a hero. Even in his personal life, he's he's a womanizer. He's got you know he's belligerent with people. He's arrogant at times. I mean, yes, he he has remorse at times, but he is by no means a hero in this film, and I think that's perfectly handled. Excellent. I have, I fully agree with that, RB. Um, I hope that we fully kind of <laughs> explored Oppenheimer to its full potential. Uh, let's go ahead and say, where where does this one sit? At, does it sit at the top of the list for you, RB? Because for me, I'm going to go ahead and say my top of the list Nolan film is still The Prestige. I feel like that's his most original film. It's his most awesome <laughs> performances in a film. Christian Bale's amazing in that film. I think Prestige is number one. The Dark Knight number two, or kind of almost at the same level. They're both 10 out of 10 yeah. in my book. And then um, I actually have number three as Interstellar because I really love Interstellar um, a lot. Yeah. You know, this is hard for me because so many of uh, his films are 10 out of 10s for me. I will go as far as saying, I mean, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Interstellar, uh Inception, mm-hmm. and I will go as far as saying The Dark Knight Rises are all ten out of tens for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I mean, and that hurts this film because this film is not a ten out of ten for me. It's a nine out of ten. But I would put right. it, 
under all of those films at six. I liked it better than Dunkirk. Dunkirk is my least favorite of his works. I liked it better than uh, Batman Begins. I'm not a big fan on that. We've talked about that on the show. Uh, and I have yet to see Memento. I've yet to see Insomnia, you said it's called, right? And uh, mm-hmm. Darkwing? What was the first one, his first film? Oh, The Following. <laughs> following. Yeah. I knew it had wing in it. There we go. Yeah. And I have not seen Tenet either. Uh, Tenet, yeah. of course, coming out uh, during COVID. Never got a chance to see that one. Uh, but yeah, and it's it's a shame to put this one in the lower third. Yeah. But, I mean, it's it's more a credit to all of the great films that Christopher Nolan's made Absolutely. more than a jab at Oppenheimer as a film. Yeah, I, I actually think that I have a new uh, number four here. This breaks my top mm-hmm. five. I, I'm going to put okay. this one above Dark Knight Rises. I think actually I'm okay. going to put this one above Inception as well. I, I think that really? this oh, one see, is – I love Inception. I like Inception a lot, but I don't know. This one felt really special, and I think it's the okay. ending for me that really felt more powerful than Inception. That kind of put it through the roof for me. Okay. So that's, that's kind All of right. where I well, sit. And then, but, yeah, Inception is number five still, of course. That's an awesome movie. <laughs> yeah. All right, fair enough. Well, 9 out of 10 from both of us. This film definitely, I would say, lived up to the hype for both of us. Um, Obviously, a lot of big-name films still coming out. Obviously, this film released at the same week as Barbie. Uh, Don't know if you've had the chance to see it, Dom. I have. I have some things to say about it, definitely, when you get a chance to see it. Uh, Haunted Mansion as well coming out this – all right, all right. Haunted Mansion coming out this week as well. I've had the chance to see that one. A lot of a lot of things to say about that one as well. Uh, definitely surprised with that film. So we'll be talking that. And of course, Secret Invasion is done, and we'll have a lot of things to say Ugh. about Secret Invasion as well. I'm sure. Gosh. Oh yeah. Bad things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things. Things of the not good <laughs> variety for sure. Absolutely, and maybe and then, we'll even in the future yeah. throw in a special review of The Bear, season one and two. Yeah. RB, have been getting, RB and I have both getting into that one, so that will be coming at some point in the future as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that said, we'll see you guys next time on Top of the List. Uh, you can find our links down below, everything we usually have, Letterboxd, everything else, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. You can find us there. Uh, We'll see you guys on the next episode of Top of the List. Later, everybody.